When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Frequently people will say, oh, well, actually, you're a liberal. And I will say, well, it's actually worse than that. I'm a radical. Then I'll really confuse them. I tell them that I am a radical who wants to live in a world so good that I get to be a conservative. And, you know, when you say something like that, it forces people to think. Yeah. The number of people who, upon hearing that, say, well, I describe myself as on the right, but now that I hear it, maybe I'm a reluctant radical, too, is fairly high. Hello, and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Brett Weinstein. Brett is a former professor of biology and an evolutionary theorist. Over the past couple of years, he has found himself through no fault of his own or little fault of his own, I should say, in the eye of the culture war storm. He became the focal point of a controversy at Evergreen State College in Washington in 2017 when he refused to observe a day of absence that would have required white faculty and white students to stay at home for the day. A huge controversy ensued, not only on Evergreen campus itself, but also in the wider political media and online world where the controversy was discussed for a long time and is still discussed today. Brett is one of those rare people who, far from backing down in the face of protest and accusation, actually stood his ground. He has gone on to develop a reputation as a principled critic of the crisis of liberalism and as someone who defends rationalism, truth and freedom of speech against the onslaught of relativistic thinking. He is also, I think, part of the intellectual dark web, though we can ask him about that later, and he now speaks and publishes widely on the dimming of reason in the 21st century. He's widely described as a professor in exile, and he describes himself as being on the left, which I think is fairly unusual in the world of the intellectual dark web. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. I want to start off by asking you about something you said about freedom of speech or about something that's actually not about freedom of speech. You said in relation to some of the campus controversies and, and the, I guess the culture war controversies more broadly, you said this is not about free speech. It is about a breakdown in the basic logic of civilization. And that does sound quite Lord of the Flies. And I wonder if you can explain to us what you mean by, firstly, do you mean that freedom of speech is a small aspect of a broader problem? And what do you mean by a breakdown in civilization? Yeah, that's a, a broad question. Maybe I'll take it in a couple of, of sections. The problem with the free speech framing is that one, free speech has a very narrow meaning in the United States that only applies, for example, to public institutions. And that creates a, uh, a paradox for us in the context of 
the crisis on college campuses because some colleges are private, some colleges are public, and the, the, the division is almost perfectly arbitrary. The college I taught at, Evergreen, is publicly funded, but most of the money that runs it is actually tuition money, which is private money. Nonetheless, the First Amendment applies because, in theory, it is a governmental institution. On the other hand, something like Harvard is private, in spite of the fact that most of its funding comes from NSF and NIH, and so the First Amendment does not apply. But in any case, we have a second level of paradox in the sense that in order to deliver a high-quality product, for lack of a better term, a college has to curate speech. In other words, mm -hmm. it brings in certain perspectives and declares others not worthy of consideration. That's part and parcel of how it functions. So for us to declare that what's taking place on college campuses is wrong because of the First Amendment immediately invites the question of, well, what is this place? Is anybody supposed to say anything on equal ground? And obviously that wouldn't make any sense. So what I do think we are seeing is a rejection of the most foundational principles of Western civilization, that a certain stripe of authoritarians on the left is rebelling against not only the Enlightenment, but the very concept of Enlightenment. So I have heard, much to my shock and horror, people actually argue that the scientific method itself is a tool of oppression, which uh, strikes fear in me because I know that the scientific method, when properly wielded, is the best tool we have for correcting for bias. That is, in fact, its primary virtue. And so to declare it partisan is to leave us with literally nothing other than power. And it, in, in fact, invites exactly the situation that postmodernists claim we already have, in which there is nothing but power in the public space. So it, when, when you talk about the uh, breakdown of civilization at a, at a foundational level, do you think your own experience speaks to that. I, I mean, for, perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit of kind of potted, the potted version of your experience at Evergreen, because when I was watching some of that unfold, watching some of the videos, reading some of the material, reading some of the social media posts, I was incredibly shocked by a number of things. Firstly, the, the profound sense of entitlement among students that they thought they could simply exclude an entire section of the uh, campus population for a day um, and also their unwillingness to listen to reasoned argument and those two things stuck with me and made me think that perhaps the problem on campus is even deeper than I suspected. Well I can virtually guarantee you that in, at least in the US it is deeper than almost anyone suspects. On the other hand there's a way in which what you saw and I, I will describe a little bit about what it what it surrounded but what you saw is distorted because of course the things that you're likely to see are the things that are dramatic and captured on film and the things that you can't see are the ones that nobody recorded or are more subtle but what happened to me is that actually starting in 2016 a uh, an effort was uh, advanced within the college by our new college president that was labeled as um, a an equity committee. And they advanced what was ultimately called an equity plan. And that plan was a grave threat to the structure of the college. In fact, I believe that if simply implemented, it would have resulted in short order in the uh, financial insolvency of the college for reasons we could get into or not. 
But nonetheless, I opposed that proposal starting uh, at the first evidence of what it contained back in the spring of 2016, a full year before any of what happened at Evergreen became newsworthy. That made me uh, a target of faculty members who viewed me as an obstacle to what I would argue is a takeover of the college, a college that until then had had the most horizontal structure amongst faculty of any college in existence and had also had uh, the most extreme degree of academic freedom of any college I'm aware of. We were literally able to teach whatever we wished to teach in whatever way we wished to teach it so long as we taught our share of freshmen. And that freedom led to two things that ultimately came into conflict with each other. One was that faculty who wished to discover new possibilities, pedagogically speaking, had a blank canvas on which to experiment and paint. And my wife, who also taught at Evergreen, was literally Evergreen's most popular professor. She and I, for 15 years, taught students in a way that was highly successful and would not have been possible in a, in a standard college setting. But the other thing that became possible in in uh, in the context of such academic freedom was that there were a great many faculty who were lazy and just minimized the amount of work they did and were not imaginative. And then there were those who used that freedom uh, to indoctrinate students into a worldview that ultimately uh, boiled over in a very dramatic fashion. What is said of the day of absence is that that is the thing that caused the protests which became riots. That's not quite right. What happened was I opposed the day of absence, which was a ritual that had existed on the campus since the early 70s in which uh, at first black students and faculty and then later students and faculty of color more generally absented themselves from campus for a day. And then in 2017, white people were asked to leave campus for the day. And I argued that there was all the difference in the world between absenting yourself to make a point, which I would defend as a, an essential freedom, and absenting other people, which I argued was an exercise of power. What people saw on YouTube were students confronting me over what they claimed was racism. What was not apparent is that the students who were confronting me were all new from my perspective. I had not met a single one. All of my students and all of my wife's students uh, remained loyal to us throughout because they knew that inside the classroom we took their interests very seriously and we valued them and that we were in fact none of the things of which we were accused. We had been uh, anti-racist and we had taught from an evolutionary perspective. We had taught our students how to understand the evolution of racism, uh, sex and gender differences. We had given them tools that were useful in the context of that battle. So the irony was to be confronted over racism when in fact Professionally, we had been doing exactly what I would advocate all of us should do in order to reduce these problems, which is to dissect them and understand their nature so that they can be um, disabled. Um, the, it's fascinating to hear you talk there about the the freedom at Evergreen giving rise to two things. So on the one hand, the intellectual experimentation and the freedom of faculty to teach as they see fit but then also the freedom of other members of faculty to essentially indoctrinate students in a way of thinking that is not necessarily healthy and could be seen as anti-enlightenment. Because I think one of the problems with the discussion about the campus crisis of free thought 
is that it there's a tendency to depict it as the handiwork of snowflake millennials or a brand new generation who are magically mysteriously intolerant of all the things that older people were supposedly intolerant of so how do you strike the balance in that discussion between um looking at the responsibility of an older cohort of academics and others who embraced very questionable anti-scientific anti-enlightenment ideas and the rise of this sometimes quite violent or at least forceful group of young people who are determined to shut down anyone who displeases them well i think this is actually kind of a difficult puzzle especially for those of on, uh, of us on the left mm-hmm. because what we're what we're stuck with is an insurgency that in my experience almost never makes a an argument that can be parsed rationally in other words what it says is true is simply at odds with the facts as we can demonstrate them on the other hand i'm quite sure that at least some of the energy behind that movement is born of a frustration that surrounds real things and so i now find myself frequently in contact with people on the right who listen to what is being said about the nature of civilization and how fair it is and because it is at odds with the facts they dismiss it entirely rather than understanding that we're not going to get out of this if we do not come to understand why this is a compelling story what is it that's driving people to mutiny you'll have to understand it's very odd to have been forced to resign from a tenured position mm. by what was literally a mob of angry people wielding accusations that weren't true and then having to look for what truth might underlie their anger even though it was misdirected at me and my wife but i do find myself in that position i do think that there is something that we need to understand and that in fact um there are bad actors wielding these arguments but there are also good people who are correctly frustrated that the system is in some sense rigged against them yes that's a really interesting point i'd like to break down a few of those things because i think what's very fascinating about your story or your recent story we don't want to define your whole life by what happened at evergreen in 2016 2017 but it it, it struck it always struck me as um possibly the clearest physical manifestation of the of the current problem so as you you describe it as as a mob wielding accusations rather than pitchforks thankfully but it did feel like a it was a mob like manifestation of a political problem that had been growing for a long time so it felt more visceral more physical more a bit crazier than some of the other stuff that had been happening on campuses and i think it's very interesting that the shift you talk about in relation to the day of absence in 2017 from having previously been a voluntary uh, withdrawal of students and faculty of color from campus as a form of protest towards an insistence or an attempted insistence that white faculty and students should withdraw that i think is quite telling so one thing i wanted to ask you about was the, was the role of identity politics in relation to this because it seems to me that that speak that moment in 2017 at evergreen potentially speaks to a shift from uh, an anti-racist politics which was more about protest and a demand for equality you know we're going to absent ourselves to make it clear to you that we want to be t- treated equally towards a kind of anti-whiteness or um an identitarian competitiveness so i thought i think that shift from pro-black essentially to anti-white was quite a telling one uh it, it is in fact the the core of the confusion here and i should say 
yes, the protests were very colorful at Evergreen, but they actually did end up in a certain amount of violence and much more than that, the threat of violence, the credible threat as the president of the college, who I believe cynically used this uh, racial tension to advance his own policies, withdrew the police from campus. So we had a campus police force that maintained order, and he literally stood them down as they ratcheted up an effort to uh, to what they would have called self-police the campus, people roving the campus with baseball bats, hunting uh, from one car to the next looking for an individual, which the police assumed was me. Um, so anarchy broke out on the campus because the the president withdrew the police and forbid them to intervene. So the story really did become potentially quite volatile. The thing you point to with respect to the shift in, uh, you know, a pro-black position to an anti-white position is more than that because the pro-black position that you describe is at least most frequently and most honorably a position for equality. Mm. Now, I would argue it has to be equality of opportunity, but true equality of opportunity where people have uh, an equal footing with which to, to, to enter the world. And that's a noble position, and it's an honorable one that I hold myself. The anti-white position is actually not a desire to equalize people's opportunity, but it is a desire to hobble white people and others perceived as part of this oppressive hierarchy in an effort to reach something that at its best is a quality of outcome and at its worst is something else. Mm -hmm. So uh, people will quietly advocate for all sorts of things that no one could possibly describe as equal within this movement that describes itself as pro-equity, a term that it invariably fails to define. Yes. Uh, and one of the things that I find frustrating, like you, I consider myself left-wing. Um, and one of the things I find frustrating about this specific um, episode, but also the broader discussion around campus issues and particularly issues related to the politics of identity is that there is an assumption both among the practitioners of this new politics and their critics that this is what it means to be left wing. So you will find on campuses a lot of identitarians running around saying we hate white men. Uh, and that's presumed to be a left wing position. And of course, from the right, particularly the alt right or the crazy right or the, or the hard right, there is this assumption that to be left, to be Marxist means to be an identitarian who's obsessed with skin color and um, issues of transgenderism and sexuality and everything else. Whereas I, I've always thought that actually all those ob obsessions with the kind of minutiae of identitarianism are, are often a reneging of tra the traditional left-wing perspective, particularly in relation to the ideal of universalism and the notion that what we have in common is more important than what divides us. So how have you found it as someone who comes, who criticizes this stuff, not from the right, but from the left? How have you found it in terms of convincing people that there is a better way to be left wing, if you like? Well, it really comes down to whether or not you have the time to make the argument correctly. Mm. And if we're going to do it in sound bites or tweets, it's very hard to make the, the left argument in a, in a forceful and compelling way. So what, what we've broken down to is that the authoritarians on the left who are very uh, 
able to place their perspective in, in a soundbite context because it isn't a very rich perspective are holding the space hostage. What my wife and I did in the classroom was cultivate what, if the term hadn't been so misused, I would call a safe space. A safe mm. space being one where people were safe enough to take intellectual risks and discover what the outgrowth of uh, of that was. In the same, at the same time, what we did was we introduced the evolutionary tools that would allow people to look at the the game that we are all caught in as humans and to to comprehend it rather than to live it intuitively, to comprehend it as a phenomenon and to be able to play out, uh, for example, different scenarios. If you modified things in X way or in Y way, what would that do to the way people interact? So I think there's a, um, you know, there's just a, a fact which most people don't realize, which is that there are two bases on which we might cooperate, or at least two evolutionary bases. One of those is genetic relatedness, and this has a very ancient root. It's hard to put one's finger on how far back it goes, but you could make an argument that it goes back a billion or more years collaborating on the basis of shared genes. Much more recently, we have the ability, or we have evolved the ability to collaborate based on reciprocity based on the fact that it is good for us to collaborate that we both come out ahead in doing so that is the basis of all the best things in uh in the human uh pantheon so what we did in the classroom was we allowed people to see how those two things play out as a, uh, a foundation for organizing cooperation and so our students one of the reasons that all of the students that we taught remained loyal to us was that they knew that if you were patient and you looked at these issues deeply, that you came to understand exactly how equality might work, how we might get there, how we would recognize in what way we fail. Whereas what showed up so vividly on YouTube to confront me was a kind of impatient analysis that insisted that uh, it understood exactly in what way things had become uneven, exactly the degree to which they were uneven, and was insisting on its instantaneous correction, which is, of course, all preposterous. So I would just say, on the left, we need to recapture the ability to have that discussion so that we can do it with properly nuanced tools. Following on from that, I, I would like to ask you what failed in order to bring about the current situation. So if you look at so much of leftism today or, or progressivism or the authoritarian left, to give it its proper title, the identitarian left often looks to me like racialism disguised as um, leftism. You know, it's a kind of, it's a rehabilitation of the racial imagination. And in some cases, a rehabilitation of racial segregation itself with a desire to cut off races or to have um, people of colour only dorm rooms and all these other various things. And I wonder how you would explain the shift that has occurred from what would have been considered the correct, decent, progressive view on campuses in the 1960s, for example, which was, I guess, uh, among, you know, the kind of students we're talking about would have been the Martin Luther King view, don't judge someone by their colour, judge them by their character. How did we go from that to the current situation where judging people by their race has come back into fashion, if in a politically correct form? Do you think that's a failure of the modern liberal project? Or do you think it represents a, a return of darker, older 
um, ways of behaving. Two things. Those darker, older ways of behaving are with us always lurking under the surface, waiting for the moment at which they are the modality to get ahead. So we are always in that danger. And one of the things I've counseled people about is that because those things are built in, we really need to architect society to resist the things that tend to trigger their emergence. In other words, we really do want a fair society for many reasons. One of them is that a fair society does not cause these outbreaks of racism, whoever the targeted races may be. But the other part of your question really speaks to something that I, I view as a kind of um, panic that I've seen. So the left actually was spectacularly successful in, well, winning what, for lack of a better term, people call the culture war. And it did make things better and a great deal fairer. The problem is there is a pattern of diminishing returns. So what we did is we figured out how to collect the low-hanging fruit. And that left a lot of more difficult, more subtle problems in which uh, unfairness is built into the structure of society in ways that are very difficult to detect and hard to name. And because of that, what we have is a system that looks nominally fair but does not produce uh, access for large numbers of people. And so we are caught in a battle where people, I think, fear that the reason some people don't get ahead in spite of what appears to be access is that there is some um, obstacle within those people. Now, I don't believe this, but I do think that fear that that might be the answer motivates people to demand corrections because they cannot explain why a nominally fair system did not uh, provide more similar outcomes. Mm. In the U.S., for example, we have two populations in particular that are seemingly always challenged in spite of attempts to make the system fair. So our uh, population of African descent and American Indians, these two populations have a different experience than, let's say, uh, people from Latin America do. And I think that has a lot to do with the the origin story. It has a lot to do with the way the European population interacted with those two populations. I mean, in the extreme case of of the African drive population, they were literally brought in the bellies of ships under the most horrifying conditions and kept as essentially farm animals. So that history was disruptive of the processes that have allowed other immigrant populations to thrive. And we ought to be focused on what it is about that history that is getting in our way. But for people, again, I'm not one of them, but for people who fear that this has something to do with endogenous capacities of populations, there is a desire not to keep proceeding with the same policies that have succeeded to a point in making things fairer and then stopped, but to uh, hard code fairness into the fabric of society itself. I think that's a really important point. And uh, we have a similar situation in the United Kingdom, although historically has very different origins. So for example, um, West Indian youths in this country, particularly young West Indian men, tend to do pretty badly in terms of education in particular, whereas South Asian immigrants, the children of South Asian immigrants from India or Pakistan, tend to do quite well. And there there tend to be a number of different responses, two in particular. One is to search constantly for the 
institutional blocks to the success of certain immigrant communities, which can become a bit of a, a dead end often. And the other, which is far worse, is to interpret this as some kind of um, biological or genetic limitation on the part of certain immigrant groups. And I've noticed that, particularly among the kind of anti-PC right, there is a growing tendency to uh, racialize some of those problems. And often what you end up with is is a dual form of racialization. So on the one hand, you have the kind of the ugly sections of the right arguing that there are simply genetic limitations to certain racial groups, which is, I think, a pretty obnoxious view of the world. And then on the other side, uh, among the kind of woke left, I guess, you have this um, racialization of every issue, but it tends to be done through the structural question. And I guess one of the things I'm thinking about, particularly in relation to Evergreen and your experience and the broader discussion that it gave rise to, is um, why is there this falling back on the racial explanation? Do you think that's simply a function of our evolutionary uh, tendency to behave in a particular way or to think in a particular way? Or do you think there's a newness to those views? Do you think there is a kind of a, a political, social, cultural context in which those views become more acceptable? I believe those are actually the same thing. Uh, and what we have is a situation in which if you are a member of a population, and in particular, if you are an individual who's doing very well in our system, it makes sense. And I don't mean it's decent, but I mean it makes logical sense to rationalize those structures that served you and hobbled your potential competitors. And so we do have that, uh, especially on the far right. We have a rationalization of inequality that is just simply self-serving. Um, but there is also built into humans as an extension of, you know, the tree of life, there is a strong tendency to compete lineage against lineage. And that means that we tend to find uh, reason to implement rules that place us at advantage and place others at disadvantage. And then what we do is we rationalize the decency of those rules. So we explain why we did it in a way that um, allows us to wash our hands of responsibility for those policies. And so, you know, there are lots of examples. Obvious ones have to do with uh, just the simple fact that we, for example, collect tax revenue by zip code and then uh, redistribute it to schools in a local fashion. When you do that, you tend to reinforce whatever patterns of uh, of resource distribution already existed. So to the extent that zip codes are not evenly uh, distributed amongst races, you tend to reproduce patterns of education that reproduce patterns of success and failure. And then you can say, well, um, why is it that X or Y population just simply fails to thrive? Well, it has a lot to do with the fact that its schools suck. You know, that's mm. just the nature of it. So what we should do what I would hope we would do is recognize that in the end, that game in which we compete lineage against lineage is going to be self-defeating, that we cannot continue to play that game uh, in this day and age with the power of the tools at our disposal through technology, with the way that our populations are interlinked with each other and on a planet with seven billion people on it. It's, this is just simply not going to be a long ride if we continue to commit ourselves to that game. The alternative involves putting aside our genetic relatedness, which frankly, once you understand why 
our genes would have us care about it, you're essentially obligated to reject it because there's nothing honorable in the spelling of one's genes. Um, what we can replace it with is the much superior basis for cooperation that arises out of the fact that we are capable of more together than we are if we are divided. And so in any case, take that as a defense of good old-fashioned liberalism mm -hmm. and the idea that we have a great deal to gain if we um, view each other favorably and treat each other honorably and establish systems that don't give anyone uh, a built-in advantage. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I want to come back to the question of genes and the extent of their influence on people and groups and individuals, because there's a few questions I want to ask you in, on, on that in particular. But the first, just sticking with the controversies of the past few years and what they reveal about society and so on, I wanted to ask you about freedom of speech. So you've touched on freedom of speech. Um, and you've said that in the American context, it's a bit complicated because um, it largely stems from the First Amendment, which uh, prevents government from interfering in speech, but doesn't necessarily prevent private groups. But you're not saying that freedom of speech is unimportant, you're, or are you? No. 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 It's vitally important. But I would say we can improve the quality of the argument by at least saying freedom of expression rather than freedom of speech. Um, freedom of speech is too closely tied to the First Amendment, and right. that limits the power of the argument because it is limited to governmental interference. Freedom of expression is more abstract, but it is the important concept. We have to be free to express things to each other in order for us to navigate as a civilization. So I find it vital, but I don't find it a particularly clean description of what has gone wrong. It's a symptom of what has gone wrong. Yeah. What is going wrong is actually an exercise of power in which groups that find themselves capable of wielding stigma are silencing other people in an effort to, to get ahead. And once you start to look at it in that context, this is actually a more complicated puzzle that cannot be solved by buttressing free expression rights because that isn't the limit of what's going on. I actually agree with that more than I thought I would. But the, but one of the things that I have found frustrating about the campus culture wars is the way in which the argument for freedom of speech has been weaponized, or weaponized might be slightly unfair, but, but colonized by the right, largely speaking, um, and abandoned by much of the left, particularly the authoritarian left. And I think that makes the free speech discussion even more difficult because um, to a lot of people, it looks like a right wing idea, which um, can make it awkward for people like us to clearly articulate what we mean by freedom of speech. Have you had that experience? Oh, it's uh, absolutely <laughs> bewildering. Um, but I will say, I think it's a manifestation of a larger um, 
reorganization. We crossed some tipping point and suddenly all sorts of things are in play in ways that we didn't understand that they were. And so I meet large numbers of people on what I would call the center right, mm. whose um, values are a better match for the traditional left values than almost anybody I find on the left at the moment. So it's not just free speech, but it's also you know, of all things, the center right is defending the exercise of science in the context of the university. Like this is a total reversal of what I regard as, you know, normal. And I'm not saying it should be that way, but I certainly grew up in a world in which the right looked askance at science in large measure because of the threat that Darwinism posed to a core constituency over there. And now I find them defending the need to use science in the university context, defending free speech. And I, I guess, um, A, I'm, I'm uh, a little bit ashamed on behalf of the left that it has abandoned these things to the right, but I'm also grateful to the right for picking up the mantle because if they weren't doing it at the moment, at least in the US, very few would be. I often feel shame in relation to the left these days. And one of the things, I mean, because this is something that I think, even despite the vast ocean that separates our countries, this is something that they share in common, which is the left's abandonment of ideals that were traditionally pretty left-wing. I mean, if you go back to the the Revolutionary National Assembly in France in the late 1700s, early 1800s, where the term the left comes from, the people who sat on the left side, I mean, these were people who were pro-reason, pro-rationalism, pro-liberty, uh, pro-fraternity and all those other things. And very often today, the left, or, or, or what is seen to be the left, uh, is explicitly stands in opposition opposition to all of those things. It's not in favor of liberty. Um, it's very often cagey about reason and rationalism. And as you said earlier, sees them as, in some cases, a kind of conspiracy by the patriarchy to in, in, in enforce a certain view of the world. So I think that's incredibly disappointing. And I find myself spending a lot of time trying to convince left people on the left to recover left-wing values. But one thing I wanted to ask you was, What's your experience? You say that you off, you mix with center right people who often do a very, a better job than left wingers of defending those values. And like others who have been swept up in the culture war storm, you, you are one of those people who kind of gets dragged into right wing circles or find yourselves on a, on, a, find yourself on a panel and everyone else is on the right and you're on the left. How do those people on the right who you associate with, how do they relate to your insistence that you're still a liberal, you're a leftist, you're not a conservative? How do they react to that? It's actually one of the most heartening things about the last couple of years for me, um, because at first there was a, a kind of mind numbing insistence that I, in fact, was now waking up and coming to the right and, you know, welcome that kind of thing. And I kept saying, no, actually, my position hasn't changed at all. I'm grateful that there are people on the right making sense. It's not the uh, intolerant right that I remember from my youth, um, but I'm still over on the left. The number of people who claim that I am on the right, that I am apparently on the right, has gone way down. Right. And the richness of the conversation that I have with people has started to go way up. So what I now get is a great deal of curiosity about how I could be on the left in light of what they see largely correctly as a kind of uh, delusion that has taken over the authoritarians. Mm. But 
the um, the most heartening aspect of it is that frequently people will say, oh, well, actually, you're a liberal. And I will say, well, it's actually worse than that. I'm a radical. And they will say, well, how could you possibly be a <laughs> radical? And I'll say, well, I'm a reluctant radical. And then I'll really confuse them. I tell them that I am a radical who wants to live in a world so good that I get to be a conservative. <laughs> and, you know, when you say something like that, it forces people to think. Yeah. And so that conversation, the conversation that happens after I give them my sort of taxonomy of, uh, of belief is a very open conversation. And uh, this is going to sound like a fairy tale, but the number of people who, upon hearing that, say, well, I describe myself as on the right, but now that I hear it, maybe I'm a reluctant radical too, is fairly high. So anyway, I, I don't say this to indicate that some position on some spectrum that I think is probably uh, too archaic to be useful at this point is correct. But what I do think is happening is that there is a great deal of openness everywhere but the fringes. There's a great deal of openness to some story about how we are to be interacting that is new enough to have a potential to be right. Mm. And so they are willing, mm. people who view the left as simply insane are willing to listen to somebody who says he's a radical because he's saying something they haven't heard before. It's fascinating to hear you say that. I, I did a talk in Australia last year to a large group of people who were mainly on the right. And I spent a lot of the talk quoting Trotsky, as I like to do when I speak to right-wing people. And a lot of them came up to me afterwards uh, inquiring as to whether they were Trotskyists too, without having realized it before I said to them, you're probably not, but nice for asking. But the, uh, I, I, just following on from what you said, is it possible that actually what's happening, you know, cause I have a tendency and I think probably you have a tendency to, to say I'm on the left, I'm on the left, I'm on the left. And, and sometimes it's a defense mechanism against the fact that a lot of our friends and colleagues and others are on the right and you want to kind of, you know, make it clear where you stand. But I wonder if we are kind of pushing back against the tide of history, because I think one of the interesting things, which I think you've just touched upon is, is about this current period is that all sorts of new alliances are emerging. Um, which might speak to the possibility that left and right are not the most useful maps for understanding what people say and what people do, and that possibly a new kind of politics is emerging. But maybe we don't see it because we're quite wedded to the 20th century version of understanding things. Well, I'm, I'm trying my best to see it, and I do think uh, it's happening. But I also I feel a little bit the weight of history I feel a kind of obligation that comes from, you know, my origin story, really, with respect to how people became aware of me. Because what I did was stare down accusations of racism yeah. that most people cannot figure out how to stare down. And just simply by demonstrating that somebody could level that accusation at a straight white guy, the straight white guy could say, nope, mm -hmm. I'm not a racist. I know what I believe here's what it is, and live to tell the tale, that actually emboldened people who couldn't figure out how to say it. So I think there's something analogous going on in the simple left-right question, which is, you know, I remember uh, when I was much younger, the term liberal became toxic in the U.S. context. And people, including me, I will say, stopped using it, not because I didn't resonate with the idea of being liberal, but because it just was unproductive. It mm. caused an allergic reaction when you used it. So I started calling myself a progressive. 
And really, I don't see terribly much distinction between those two things. Um, but liberal has now come back into fashion, in part because of classical liberals who are actually right of center, using the term in a way that uh, is honorable and carries mm-hmm. a lot of its original meaning. Um, but in any case, I, I think it is important for people to hear in an era where they can't find a rational liberal to speak. It is important to say, oh, actually, I'm happy to do it because it allows them to know that it is not somehow a a doctrine that has been proven false. The mm-hmm. problems of the left are real and they are, you know, they have to be solved, but they are not the consequence of us having understood that that was a wrong set of ideas. That's not what happened. And that means that though we may be few and far between, those of us on the left who remain there, who understand what those principles are and why we have work left to do, those people are important elements in the conversation. I think that's actually a a really important point of, of, by example, not caving in to the accusation that because you're a white male, a straight white male, you, you must, by definition, have these prejudices. Because one of the most extraordinary presumptions I find that is made by authoritarian leftists or identitarian leftists is this notion of innate prejudice. Um, and it, the, the thing that I find most horrifying about it is that it seems to echo the idea of the the innate inferiority of races in the past that kind of the, the poison engine of racial politics has now been rehabilitated but the notion is now you're you have this innate prejudice the original sin of racism this kind of stain of racism but i want to, moving on with the discussion of left and right for a little bit i want to ask you a broad question which is how do you understand the intellectual dark web and is it true that you're a member of the intellectual dark web? Um, I Are you now? Have, have, have you ever I ever been? been a member of the intellectual dark web? That's beautiful. Um, yes, I, I have no idea if I'm a member of the intellectual dark web. I'm certainly usually listed as in the IDW. Um, there is a photograph that was taken at a dinner in Los Angeles. I was not present at the dinner. And so sometimes I think people look at that photograph and imagine that must be the intellectual dark web meeting. But I think that the thing to understand is that the IDW, a term that was coined by my brother, Eric Weinstein, um, refers to something that is by virtue of its design quite intentionally not precise that I think, I don't want to speak for him, but I believe Eric had a correct fear that to define IDW too precisely would um, make it impossible that such a thing might survive. And so, in any case, he left it loose, and I think it has beaten the odds. It has survived longer than one might imagine, and it has succeeded in uh, neutralizing the critiques that were leveled at it quite falsely. So I don't know if I'm a member, um, but... So uh, as a member or non-member, how would you describe it? What uh, what what function do you think it plays? Why does it exist, I guess, is the question. Uh, it exists for a very important reason. And again, I'm speaking for me. I'm not speaking for Eric or anyone else. But there has been... Let, let me back up a little bit. There are a couple of ways that we can interact when we disagree. One is that we can resort to strategy and we can jockey for position. That is 
a good way to get ahead and a terrible way to figure out what's true. The other way is for us to agree that we would rather be wrong uh, and lose an argument. If we are, if our position is wrong, we would rather lose an argument than win if we are incorrect. And the defining feature of the people who are typically named in the IDW is that they all appear to have uh, an agreement on this, that discovering what's true is the purpose of argument, and they all appear willing to take risks in public with their own reputations on that basis. And that means that conversations that are very difficult for others to have have been successfully uh, maneuvered by IDW members. And the hope, I think, is that the means to do this will spread. Mm -hmm. People recognizing that they actually would prefer to hear, for example, Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson uh, hash out their differences over truth and religious belief than to have the side that's closer to theirs win that argument in some sense. Mm. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. This takes me very neatly onto something I want to talk to you about, which is to get a bit Pontius Pilate, what is truth? And um, bringing in some of the things you said earlier about science and and then I want to touch upon the question of evolutionary aspects of behavior and, and thought. But firstly, on the science thing, um, I find myself in this kind of curious position where on the one hand, I really definitely absolutely want to defend the scientific method and the use of reason and the deployment of reason as, as the, the means of understanding the natural world and potentially our place within it too. And there are too many attacks on that at the moment from relativists and identitarians and all sorts of kind of modern day hysterics in some cases, or certainly modern day backward forms of thinking. But I wonder, uh, is there a point or is there a danger where one's defense of science itself becomes quite a rigid phenomenon? And 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 the wonderful thing about science, which is, which is actually its distrust of authority and its distrust of tradition. If you think back to the Royal Society in the 1600s, whose motto was on the authority of no one, which was an incredibly radical enlightenment motto. So, and it, and it wasn't listen to the science. It was quite the opposite. It was on the authority of no one. We will investigate things as we see fit. Do you think in more recent times, possibly as an understandable reaction against the forces of relativism, there has been a tendency to almost ossify science as a new form of authority. Oh, yeah. And the cost <laughs> of society is is staggering. In fact, mm. we are putting ourselves in grave danger for having, well, in my opinion, plugged science too directly into the market so that it has started to do double duty where it should be fearlessly figuring out what's true and what the implications are. It's, um, you know, it's moonlighting as some sort of mechanism for delivering us some, I don't know, other kinds of goods. But, uh, but anyway, my point would be there is a 
best, most noble version of science. And it is radical and it does support heresy when that heresy has a strong potential to reveal something new. So when I advocate for science, I'm not advocating for university science as it's currently done. In fact, I have very little patience for it. And I think, you know, the so-called replication crisis that we've seen in academic psychology is the tip of an iceberg and it's going to uh, rock the entire scientific establishment. Not because there's anything wrong with the philosophy of science, but because that's not what we're deploying. But were we to return to a philosophically well-grounded uh, scientific inquiry, one which did not subscribe to reductionism as synonymous with the method, but one that balanced reductionism with synthesis and honored theory in a, in a proper fashion, what we would find is that the key to our liberation does lie, at least in large measure, in understanding the basic nature of what we are and how we fit into the universe. That is not to say, I disagree with some people, in particular Sam Harris very probably, that does not mean that science is sufficient mm -hmm. to fully ground a moral system, for mm -hmm. example. I do believe that actually we have to draw on other things which can be understood scientifically, but nonetheless, it isn't the simple facts of the universe that cause us um, to produce a moral system. It is an interaction between an understanding of what is and a very humanistic argument about what we would like to see. That's actually very useful. And um, one of the things that I have found quite striking and shocking in recent years is the way in which environmental campaigners, for example, will march through the streets with banners saying, listen to the science or listen to the scientists. And there is a almost biblical element to that where the word of God becomes the word of science. And but I wonder if, going back to the question of enlightenment, and I do think the crisis of enlightenment is really the situation we're living through, all the, the counter-enlightenment and things that you have written about and Stephen Pinker and, and others have written about. There was, of course, a, a, a tension in the enlightenment, a healthy tension, um, not a, necessarily a bad one, between concepts of scientific reason and the ideal of moral reason. And one of the concerns I have at the moment is the the possibility that the elevation of scientific reason by certain but not simply by idw people but by politicians you know who who will frequently justify policy measures according to science rather than according to moral judgment or democratic engagement i wonder if there's a danger that the elevation of scientific reason can um translate into the rule of experts whereas the ideal of moral reason is the belief that every person has it within their capacity to exercise reason for themselves and to interpret the world for themselves. And how does one strike the balance between those two things without going so far down the route of moral reason that you end up justifying relativism? That's a great question. I would say a couple things are true. One, if we have a lot of time to play with, then part of the answer is that everybody deserves a deep enough education that they can really understand what it is that makes science special, how, how one wields it, and maybe most importantly, how one recognizes actual science from things that just speak in the language of science but haven't gotten there uh, by using the method. But I don't want to see science as 
an excuse for simply listening to people who are experts. One of the things that you discover inside of a field is that the expertise of many of the people who are highly placed is not of high quality. And you see this in a couple of fields uh, in, a, in sequence and you begin to realize that there is something more basic broken about the way that we hand out credentials, right? That credentialing is, of course, uh, has implications in the market and it therefore cannot help but be corrupted when market forces are found on both sides of it. So in order for science to play the role that it should be playing, it has to be insulated from those forces such that expertise actually does mean something and so that experts are capable of navigating uh, and admitting, frankly, what they don't know. On the flip side, with respect to something like the environmental crisis, I often hear that this is so complex that there's no way of approaching it because even understanding what is being discussed, what the subtle differences in the, are in the models that predict climate one way or the other, uh, is beyond almost anybody's capacity except a very few experts in the field. But I would argue it a very different way. This looks like a very simple puzzle to me in, a, in an odd sense, which is we can see on a hundred different fronts that humans are behaving in a very unsustainable fashion and that there is no plan for stepping back from that. So what we know is that the industrialization of society and the way that our economic system fosters competition has produced um, many different kinds of unsustainability. It's going to be a short ride if we keep doing that. What we have to do is figure out how to bring our systems in line such that what they produce is actually sustainable over the indefinite future, and then we as humans can persist. So I don't want to approach the climate problem independently. I want to approach the unsustainability problem as a natural consequence of competition as it has been deployed, and to just simply recognize that we are at a crossroads. The characteristics that human beings have that have made us successful to this point, those very characteristics are going to be our undoing if we do not figure out at this moment how to shift into some other phase. I don't know whether we can do it. I know of no reason it's impossible. But I do think our survival depends on it. And that instead of viewing these puzzles like climate as independent, viewing them as symptoms of an unsustainability engine is the way to view it and that that ought to be our shared focus. One of the approaches I take in relation to the environmental issue and, and many other public issues is is the need to remoralize public discussion. So, uh, for example, to understand the environmental issue as um, a question of what the scientists have revealed um, in terms of the amount of CO2 and the impact we'll have in 12 years' time or 20 years' time or whatever, is to neglect the moral question of what humanity needs. So, for example, you know, three billion people still live on less than $10 a day, which strikes me as a moral imperative in terms of coming up with solutions and ideas and arguments and so on, which might go against the science, but would be entirely justifiable from the perspective of moral reason, which is that you are driven by a moral compunction to assist other members of the human race. But I just wanted to touch on 
you mentioned their characteristics. So the characteristics of, well, let me ask a question. Are you talking about the characteristics of capitalist society or the characteristics of human beings? I think actually one is a manifestation right. of the other. That human beings have, you know, before there was ever currency, competed lineage against lineage. And, you know, introducing currency creates the opportunity for markets, which then manifest these very same traits. And so I'm, I'm not anti-market. I actually think markets are a tremendously powerful tool, but I am very much against the way we use them. We effectively allow markets to discover every defect in our character and sell us something to fill the hole. And uh, what we should be doing is figuring out what we actually want. And then we can ask markets how to best accomplish that thing, right? If we come at this morally and we say, what, what is the desired outcome? Then a market may very well be in a good position to tell you how to do it better than you would figure it out if you sat down to, to blueprint it on, on a piece of paper. Um, but we're not doing that at all. And I don't know that we will be able to get there because obviously these are not conscious entities. They can't be... Mm reasoned with and somehow we have to take them without destroying the functionality of planet earth in the meantime we have to somehow take them offline and replace them with something that is capable of doing the jobs they do and doing it in a in a, a fairer and uh safer fashion so the final issue i want to talk to you about even though there's not even remotely enough time to dig into this in the way that i would like to and which you are um, more capable than I am of doing is the issue of is the evolutionary question because this is when I speak to people who I guess are in the IDW or within our circles who are very curious about the current situation and um, antagonized by the current situation and so on the the thing that I bristle against most is the issue of genetic Influence. I've, I've resisted saying genet genetic determinism because every time I say that, they bark at me and say, we're not saying we're determined by genes, but we're saying there is an influence or it plays a significant role. Because I, I guess my fear to sum it up is that it, it, it can come off like a new version of the idea of fate or a new version of the idea that your, your, your script is written for you by forces beyond your control. Now, in the past, it might have been God who did that or nature or someone else who who, who we have no um, control over. And in the modern era, it increasingly seems to be done in the language of genes. So how do you, as someone who is an evolutionary biologist, how do you um, counter or resist or challenge those of us who would say um, – there's more to human beings than genetics. Well, there's good news and bad news on this front. Uh, the bad news is we don't actually know. Um, the good news is I don't believe there is anything that we need be terribly afraid of. And that unfortunately the story that we are being handed about genes is quite lopsided. Human beings are by far the farthest creature down the continuum where our genome has offloaded to our cultural layer mm. all sorts of evolutionary um, machinery. And so there's a reason that selection did that for us. It means that we're far more flexible than any other creature. We can, without being 
modified genetically at all, completely transform the way we interact with the world. That's an amazing capacity that has been tremendously valuable for humans. Um, but it, what it means is that the uh, what happens to you after you're born is um, tremendously impactful in terms of how you end up, what not only what language you speak, but what kinds of thoughts you will be able to wield in an agile fashion. Now, we are caught in a little bind here because uh, we have recently gone through a kind of a spasm where there was a, an enthusiasm about a blank slate version of human character. The blank slate is completely wrong, and therefore we are now in the backlash against the blank slate mm-hmm. where people are, again, returning to a focus on what is um, determined by our genomes. I don't think that this actually reflects the underlying reality. The fact is being smart serves you no matter what population you came from, no matter what circumstances they lived in. It doesn't matter if you were a hunter-gatherer on the American plains, whether you lived high in the Andes as part of the Incan Empire. Uh, it doesn't matter where you were in human history. The smarter you were, the better able to navigate those circumstances you would be. The question of what software package you end up with once you have been born dictates in what way you will move forward in the world. And what I have seen traveling the world, interacting with people from many different populations, and also maybe even more importantly, in the classroom for 14 years teaching people from many different populations and uh, many different backgrounds is that human beings have a staggering capacity for cognition. The ability to wield that cognitive capacity gets diminished if you are in a developmental environment that does not cause it to be augmented at Mm -hmm. a high rate. We have not begun to create the enriching environments that would milk the maximum amount out of human cognitive capacity. And until we do, we actually have no idea if there even are significant differences in cognitive capacity between populations, nor would I have any idea which populations to bet on if there were such differences. Logically speaking, it's very unlikely that there are none at all. Mm. On the other hand, There is no reason to think that the differences in success between populations that we see are primarily or even measurably due to some sort of genetic predisposition. The fact is we have something like uh, 20,000 genes of which there might be 100,000 different edits in our genome. We have trillions of connections in our minds. You cannot specify how a mind works by describing it in the genome. That's not how a brain comes into existence. And so the simple mismatch between the amount of information contained in our genomes and the way that an adult brain uh, is wired up suggests that the lion's share and possibly all of what we need to be thinking about is over on the developmental and the cultural side and not lurking in the genome. That's a very interesting overview. Um, that's very helpful. Uh, I wonder if the possibility of, of, of diminished cognition might also be accelerated by precisely by the popularizing of genetic ideas. So for example, one of the current fads 
is for people to blame their genes for things that actually they're probably responsible for at some level. You know, I'm a drunk because it's in my genes or I'm obese because it's in my genes. And there is this, uh, or, or, you know, at a more serious level, um, young among the younger generation in particular, there is this tendency to interpret everyday problems as, as mental health crises and then to see them as products of a genetic predisposition and so on. So there is often, there is sometimes a temptation to excuse making on the part of individuals who could probably, if they were encouraged in a different developmental climate, overcome those problems. But having said that, I, I wanted to say that I thought your um, description of the current discussion or debate or conflict as one between the blank slate thesis and, and the backlash against the blank slate thesis is actually a very useful way to understand it. And, and one of my concerns, which I wanted to see what you think, is that often that looks like a conflict between two different forms of determinism or possible determinism. So on the one hand, you have the idea of social determinism. So we're all blank slates and we're shaped by how we're parented or what we read or whether we're read to as children or racism or patriarchy and all these things which apparently mould us into whatever we eventually become. And then the backlash, the pushback, potentially overcompensates for that by saying, well, actually, genes are far more influential than society and you're not a blank slate, you're born in the following ways. Do you see a commonality? I know which side in that discussion you would err more towards, but do, do you? <laughs> Maybe I don't, in fact. But <laughs> do you see a commonality between, um, it, ironically, because they look diametrically opposed, but do you see a commonality between the blank slate thesis that society makes us and the backlash which says, actually, we're born this way? in Lady Gaga's words. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely see that parallel. And I, I have very little patience for either of these perspectives. Like, neither one strikes me as nuanced. Um, and what I would like is for us to have the courage to actually continue to investigate this question rather than to sign up for what ultimately turns into a kind of ideology or a signal of allegiance in, in some way uh, about which side you tend to emphasize. And it's really, it's a mirror of something that's more generally true when you look at complex systems, which is that there's very frequently a, a truth that you have to engage, but if you fall in love with it, it becomes singular. So I used to warn my students that there are certain things which you have to accept, but don't fall in love with them or they will blind you just down the road. So for example, the idea that a, uh, an ant colony is an organism. That is a true idea, but it's not a hundred percent true. What it is is true enough that you have to spend some time thinking about an ant colony as an organism to understand it. But if you think that all it is is an organism, then you won't understand what an individual ant that you come across means. So I would advise mm -hmm. people in both camps, the blank slate camp and the backlash camp, to um, to decamp from those positions and look at what they've missed because they have signed up for these overly facile answers. I like that phrase, true enough, and because that's that accepts the possibility of truth and the fact that there are facts, while at the same time not turning them into scripture or 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 gospel truth which is always a different kettle of fish the final thing i wanted to ask you was just if you could explain to us the importance of being allowed to investigate these things because one of the difficulties some people face 
is when they raise these issues or raise these questions, they are often shut down. When they raise the questions of gender difference, for example, or, you know, never mind questions in relation to racial groups or whatever else, however we want to define them, they're shut down. Now, we may agree with these investigators, we may disagree with them, we may challenge them, whatever we choose to do. But you would agree that this is all stuff that people should be allowed to study, investigate, and comment on. Yeah, and I don't say that lightly. There's certainly questions that I wouldn't spend my time on, um, not because I necessarily think there's nothing down the road, but just I I wouldn't want to engage with them anymore. You know, I wouldn't want to be an oncologist because as much as it's very important that somebody treats cancer victims, I'm not sure I could stomach that being my daily job. Um, but no, we have to be able to study for several different reasons. And I think we lose, we lose track of why this is so important as we, uh, take on a kind of hubris about how much we know. The reason we have to be able to investigate down all of these roads is that we don't understand how far we have to go. And there's no way of knowing until you've done the investigation. What you bring up with respect to sex and gender is maybe the perfect example because what you will find when you research sex and gender is that the story is not the pretty picture that those on the simple-minded left would like it to be. It is not a matter of the fact that these are slightly different flavors of human being. Male and female are radically different for reasons that have extremely ancient roots. And the way this manifests in human beings is actually uh, vastly different from even our closest evolutionary kin. We are special in this regard. Males and females are asymmetrical, uh, or maybe a better way to put it is it's kind of a yin-yang dynamic between us for reasons that are totally comprehensible. And I will say that having looked at this puzzle in detail, having taught it to students, male, female, trans, all... Uh, one comes to understand is that if you can stand to listen to the description of what we are, how we got that way, what it leaves open to us to choose, and what we are probably condemned to accept, it is not a horrifying story. It's a fascinating story, and it is a liberating story. We all are imprisoned by it, and to the extent that you can understand it as a pattern that you can look at and comprehend, it means that you can go into something as important as your romantic life as an informed person who can understand their own desires and can understand their partner in a way that actually allows you to have far less conflict and far more satisfaction. So would I like to to have seen that story shut down before we had the tools to understand it? Absolutely not. That is blinding oneself so as not to see the pain in the world or something like that. Um, and I would argue that many of these avenues are going to be the same thing where there is, if we can, um, can find the strength of character to study them open-mindedly and without bias what we will ultimately come up with is profoundly liberating. It may feel the opposite at some intervening stages, but in the end, knowing is going to leave us far better off and in a position to come closest to the values that we would all describe for ourselves. Brett, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been fun. 
Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.